Good morning, Sovereign Grace. It's so great to see you all again and worship with you as we do each and every week. If you don't know me, my name is Russell Horner. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's my privilege to be able to continue our journey through the Psalms in Psalm 48 this morning. You can begin to turn there. So let's go ahead and jump right into God's Word. You can turn to Psalm 48. As we continue to go through these joyous Psalms about our King and His victory, And this week we get to talk about the city of our God. What a blessing to meditate on these realities. Psalm 48, verses 1 through 14. Let me remind you, brothers and sisters, this is the word of our Lord. Let us humble ourselves before him and attend to it as his word. Psalm 48. A song. A psalm of the sons of Korah. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, His holy mountain. Beautiful in elevation is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great King. Within her citadels, God has made Himself known as a fortress. For behold, the kings assembled, They came on together. As soon as they saw it, they were astounded. They went in panic. They took to flight. Trembling took hold of them there. Anguish as of a woman in labor. By the east wind you shattered the ships of Tarshish. As we have heard, so have we seen in the city of the Lord of hosts. In the city of our God which God will establish forever. Selah. We have thought on your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple. As your name, O God, so your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is filled with righteousness. Let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. Walk About Zion, go around her, number her towers, consider well her ramparts, go through her citadels, that you may tell the next generation that this is God, our God, forever and ever. He will guide us forever. Let's pray. Father, we give thanks for your word. Give thanks for the privilege of studying it each and every week, for the way that your Spirit works through the Word to convict us and change us. We pray, Father, as we sit under your Word, that you would help us to humble ourselves and trust you as we are strangers and aliens in this world, as your people trust in your promises in exile. Father, help us to be as Abraham was, to live by faith, living in tents, even in the promised land, because he was looking forward to a greater city, the land of promise, the land whose designer and builder is you, God. Help us to have faith and trust in you. You have given us plenty of reasons to do so. So give us that faith today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I found over the years that some of the best questions 
we can ask ourselves and to get to know each other and really sit down and have a good conversation, start with these words. What's it like to blank? What's it like to be, and then you fill in the blank with whatever you want to talk about? I love these questions. These are not questions you can sit and answer in a minute. You have to sit down and talk for hours. And you get some incredible answers with questions like this. For example, what's it like to be a parent? What's it like to be a parent? How do you answer a question like that? Especially without giving too much honesty for new parents and talking about the late night struggles or the the challenges with discipline. But also then summarizing and trying to put into words the blessings of being a parent. Of seeing children grow up. Learn new things. Learn about the world that God made. And learn about the God of that world. How do you put something like that even into words? Well, How about this question? What's it like to be married? It's such a common human experience. Most of us experience it in our life, but it is so life-altering, isn't it? Like parenting, it has its highs and it has its lows. We get the best and the worst of each other. But it profoundly shapes all of us, which makes it so hard to answer that question. Now, these are fun realities to reflect on and to talk about. There are other, much more devastating realities that makes this question even harder to answer. What's it like to be a soldier, to be a firefighter, to be a police officer? Willingly and consistently putting yourself in harm's way for the sake of other people. Leaving your home, leaving your family behind, knowing that you may not come back to see them at the end of the day. What's it like to see the worst parts of this world and then try to return home to love your family and care for them? It's a really hard question to answer. Or what's it like to lose a child? I was contemplating that question this week at a pastoral visit as we were talking about a member who'd lost their grandchild in a car accident months ago. Can't imagine what that would be like as a parent to go through that. How devastating that would be. How can you answer a question like that? Well, questions like these are nearly impossible to answer for most of us. But that's why when someone is able to answer a question like this well, when someone's able to put the incomprehensible into words that we can understand and say, yes, that's it. That's what it's like. I I couldn't wrap my mind around it, but that's what it's like. And those answers are a gift. They're a blessing to hear. And I believe Psalm 48 is one of those gifts, one of those blessings, because it answers a very similar and very difficult question. And the question is this, what's it like to be the people of God? Maybe more specifically, what's it like to be God's covenant people in exile in this fallen world? What's it like to be those that have been called out of darkness into light, that have the promises of God, that have the hope of eternal life, but we're not home yet. We're surrounded and assaulted by enemies on every side. We're strangers and foreigners in this world. We're headed to the promised land, our heavenly home, but we're not home yet. What's it like to be the people of God in a world like that? Well, that's what Psalm 48 answers for us. And I believe it answers it for us in three parts. The first, it says, it's like living in Zion. 
living in this fortress city, the city of our God and King. That's verses 1 through 3. It's also like being assaulted, being besieged by the world, being attacked by the world on every side. And we'll see that in verses 4 through 8. And lastly, most importantly, it's like being eternally secure in God, who is our fortress and our strength. That's verses 9 through 14. So what's it like to be the people of God? It's like living in the city of our God, constantly attacked by our enemies, but eternally secure. That's the hope we have. So let's first look at the city of our God in verses 1 through 3. Verse 1 says, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. And what's that city like? His holy mountain. Beautiful in elevation is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north. The city of the great king. Now it's clear right from the beginning that the sons of Korah, as you can see, they're the writers of this psalm there in the superscript. The sons of Korah love their home. They love Jerusalem. They're extolling its praise over and over again. Did you see how they describe it? It's beautiful. It's holy. It's high and lifted up. It's even the joy of all the earth. Not just the joy of the Jews, but the joy of all the earth. It's such a glorious description that we might be tempted to think, well, you know what? Is that a little bit over the top? Is this just an exaggeration on their part? Especially if you've ever been to Jerusalem or seen pictures or kind of know a little bit about it. Some of these descriptions just don't quite make sense. Like verse 2 says, it's beautiful in elevation. Now, if you know Jerusalem or Mount Zion, it is on a hill. But it's not a very big hill. They had the song of a sense that they would march up the hill going to worship God. But it's surrounded by much bigger mountains. Mount Hermon to the north is actually three times the height of Mount Zion. To put it into perspective, it's about 2,500 feet in elevation. That's lower than Tehachapi. That's lower than most of the mountains around us that we can see. We can see when there's no smog. It's lower than those. It's not that high. It doesn't seem very impressive. But it also doesn't seem very impressive by other standards as well. For example, Nineveh, In Jonah's day, Jonah 4 has 120,000 people and much cattle. We've learned in that. That's a huge city. It took days to cross. You know how big Jerusalem was at the time of David? Commentators disagree, they estimate, but maybe 40 acres? Some of you own more land than that, right? Maybe Five, ten thousand people, we don't really know for sure. It certainly grew bigger in Solomon's day, but it wasn't 120,000 people. What about Babylon? Babylon is huge fortress with gates and thick walls. One of the walls was estimated to be 20 feet thick. This impenetrable fortress, it was huge. And it had a theater. It had the hanging gardens that are so famous, kind of one of the wonders of the ancient world. Or think of Egypt and its pyramids, which are still left today. Or the Sphinx. There are so many more glorious cities than Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the small, insignificant, unimpressive city. It's not even a military threat to most of these nations. Yes, they had the temple of God, and that was impressive in Solomon's day. But what's left of that temple now? 
there's far more left of many other nations than there is in Jerusalem right now. So how can Jerusalem, this average city, be called the greatest? How can it be called the joy of all the earth by the psalmist? Is he just lying? Is he just you know, wishful thinking here? Is that what's going on? Well, he's not lying. He's speaking truthfully, but he's not speaking materially here. He's not speaking geographically here. He's speaking spiritually and theologically and poetically about the city of God. In other words, the psalmist is not measuring the city of God by worldly standards, the kind of things that we would value, but God doesn't. Location and size and elevation and power and armies and and external glory, those things don't matter to God. There's one thing, one thing that makes this city great. And it's that the great God dwells in this city. Please don't miss that. Look back at verse 1. Great is the Lord. And greatly to be praised. Where? In the city of our God. His holy mountain. It's His mountain. It's His city. He receives the praise there because He dwells there. It belongs to Him. Look at verse 2. Beautiful in elevation is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. The psalmist can't even mention the greatness of the city without first saying, you know what, it's because the king is great. That's what makes this city great. Oh, please, this is so important, and so many of the commentators miss this. Yes, this psalm is about Zion. It's about the people of God. It's about the church in many ways. But it's also about the God of the people. It's also about the king that lives on Mount Zion. The God who dwells among his people. And we know that the city itself is not filled with people who are inherently great. Don't we? This is not the best of the best that God has gathered. The cream of the crop. No, God told Jerusalem, even back in the day, told Israel back in the day, I didn't pick you because you were a big nation. I didn't pick you because you were numerous or powerful or anything else in Deuteronomy 7. I chose you because I love you and because I'm keeping a promise to your father. And then Paul says this in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 27, God chooses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. God chooses what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. This is our God. It's kind of his MO. This is how he works. He chooses the things that are despised in the world, so he gets glory when he makes them great. The city of God is full of sinners, rejects, Leftovers of society, people just like you and me. If you don't see that this morning, then you need to read the scriptures. The scriptures are so clear. We are sinners, both by nature and by practice. There's no greatness in us at all. The only greatness that we can ever achieve is because God redeems us. Is because God makes us great. Or in the words of Peter, And God makes us a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession. This is Zion. Not filled with great people, but filled with a great God. 
making sinners into a holy nation. The psalmist continues to describe this greatness in verse 2 by talking about these elevations, these directions. Verse 2 says, Beautiful in elevation is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north. Now, as I said earlier, there is some elevation to Mount Zion, to Jerusalem. So he could be speaking literally in one sense here. But he's, I believe he's speaking spiritually. He's talking about a much greater level. Really what he's saying is God's city is beautiful in elevation, not in its physical elevation, but in its elevation over every other city. It's more glorious and more honorable and more majestic than any other city across the world. How do I know that? It's because of that little phrase right after Mount Zion. Mount Zion in the far north. Now, if you know your geography, you know a little bit about Israel. That statement probably sounds really, really weird. Because if you look at a map and you look for Mount Zion, you look for Jerusalem, it's not in the far north at all. It's almost right in the middle of the country, maybe even a little bit south. So what's going on here? Why is he saying it's in the far north? Well, actually, I believe this is a translation that's not as helpful as some others. The NIV actually is a better translation when it says, in the far north, they change it to, in the utmost heights of Zaphon. I know you're thinking that doesn't sound better, right? It sounds more confusing than anything else. But Zaphon is actually the Hebrew word for north. They just take it and transliterate it right there. And why do they do that? Well, because it's not that the nation was in the north but that there was a mountain in the north called Zaphon, way beyond Israel. And this mountain was a huge mountain. It was also a very mythological mountain. It was a mountain where a lot of false gods were said to dwell. Kind of like Mount Olympus, right? Back in high school when you learned about all those Greek gods and where Zeus dwells, all that stuff. It's kind of like Mount Olympus. Mount Zaphon is like that. It was said to be the home of Baal. And we know Baal all throughout the Old Testament. That was where his throne was for most of the people around there. It's also the place that Satan tries to set himself at the end of time. In Isaiah 14, it says this about Satan. You, Satan, said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly. And listen to this. In the far reaches of the north. In the heights of Zaphon. That's what that says. So why is the psalmist saying God sits on this idolatrous mountain? Why is Mount Zion being compared to this idolatrous mountain? Well, it's because he's doing a kind of polemic here against all these false gods. If I could say it this way in very modern day language, he's essentially saying God's the king of the mountain. You ever play that when you were a kid? King of the mountain, knocking everybody down. God is the king of the mountain. In fact, he's the king of all the mountains. He will not be toppled. He will not be destroyed. Baal is not the king of the mountain because Baal has been conquered. God sits in his place. And oh yeah, while you're at it, verse 3, within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. It's not just that God took up residence on this mountain. He didn't build his citadels, his palace, his fortress on the mountain. No, he is the fortress. He is the citadel on top of this mountain. Not even Satan himself, our greatest foe, is going to take him out. Because God rules and reigns on high from this mountain and every mountain. And what does he do from this mountain? 
In the middle of verse 2, it says, This mountain is the joy of all the earth. I wonder if this catches you off guard. It kind of catches me off guard because what happens every time someone receives tremendous power in our world? They turn to evil. They become some oppressive dictator, but not God. When he rules and reigns on high, what does he do? He blesses the world. And he blesses the world primarily by sending his son. Jesus is this blessing to all the nations. He is the joy of all the earth. Because he fulfills all those wonderful promises that the people of God have been looking for, that the world has been waiting for. He's the Satan crusher of Genesis 3.15. He's the seed of Abraham, the one that would bless all the nations of the earth through the people of God. He's even that long-awaited Davidic king that we've been talking about week after week as we've been going through these psalms. He's the one, as Jason said last week, who descended from on high. He came down to tabernacle among us, to dwell among us, to become one of us, so that he can live with us, and so we can live for us, living the life that we failed to live, and going to the cross, dying in our place, bearing the wrath of God for us, raising from the dead and ascending to heaven, where he rules and reigns on high, and he is the eternal hope for all who believe. But why did he do all that? What was that to fulfill? Listen to Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established at the highest of the mountains. Sound familiar? And shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. That's what Jesus has done. Invited all the nations to draw near to the house of the Lord in him. Calling us to go call them in. Go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. Hebrews 12 makes it sound like this. This is the passage that Mikey read earlier. Hebrews 12, 22. We are not come to Mount Sinai. We have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly, to the church of the firstborn, who are enrolled in heaven and to God, and to the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, that's us, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Brothers and sisters, do you see? city of God, it's never really been Jerusalem. It's not really been a place the whole time. It's been the people. The place can come and go. The building can come and go. But that place itself was merely a shadow pointing forward to the greater reality, which is the people of God, the church. The church is the city of God. You realize what that means, right? We don't have to get on a boat or a plane and fly and go across the ocean to go to some wall, some ruin to find God. God has come to us. Mount Zion has come to us in Christ. He's Emmanuel. He's God with us. He's made us the city of God. Yes, even Gentiles like us. He's made us the city on a hill. 
The true temple. The true tabernacle. The dwelling place of God. If you are in Christ, you are a member of the city of God. You are a citizen of the great heavenly Jerusalem. The church and Christ and its people are the joy of all the earth. That's what the church stands for. You know, there are many towns, many cities that stand for lots of things in our world. If you want to go to the home of country music, you go to Nashville. If you want to go to the entertainment capital of the world, you go to Hollywood. If you want to go to the hub of political power and government in our country, you go to Washington, D.C. Psalmist says, you want joy? You want peace with God? You want forgiveness of sins? And go to the church. Go to Christ and his body. That's the only place you will ever find it. And if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, I implore you, stop chasing the world for joy. You're chasing after the wind. There is no hope out there. All you'll do is come up empty every single time. And you just store up wrath for yourself for the day of judgment. Turn to Christ. Make Christ your refuge. Make Christ your fortress from the wrath of God to come. Repent. Trust in Him today. That's the only source of eternal life and hope and peace with God. It's Christ and Christ alone. And He will welcome you into the city of God. What's it like to be the people of God? It's like living in the city of our great King Jesus Christ and His church. But... We're not home yet, are we? We may be citizens of heaven, but we are still constantly surrounded and assaulted by enemies in this world. And that's what the next part is about. Verses 4 through 8 are about the attacks upon the city of God. Look at verse 4 with me. For behold, the kings, notice plural, kings, many kings, many kingdoms. The kings assembled. They came on together. Now, this is a little bit astounding because the kings in the world, they don't cooperate very well, right? All you have to do is watch the news and you see that. The kings of this world are always at each other, but they team up for one goal. They team up to assault the church. This is the city of man in this world, the powers of evil being gathered to go against the city of God. And it seems like they're building up nation after nation is joining together to fight the people of God. And it looks like there's this epic battle approaching. In my mind, I'm thinking Lord of the Rings, you know, huge, big armies, all that kind of stuff. And then what happens? Verse 5. As soon as they, these kings, saw it, it being the city of God, God dwelling among his people, as soon as they saw it, they were astounded. They were in panic. They took to flight. Trembling took hold of them there. Anguish as of a woman in labor. The war was over before it even began. All it took was to have a glimpse of God with his people and they were gone. Ran for their life as if their life depended on it. Because it did. And we don't really know exactly what happened here. Maybe this was some supernatural event, some kind of theophany, which just means like an appearance of God in this world. Kind of like we saw in Elisha's day when Elisha's servant's eyes were opened and he saw this heavenly army surrounding Jerusalem and protecting the people of God. 
That happens in 2 Kings 6. Or maybe it was like Balaam. You remember Balaam at the end of Numbers? Who's called and paid to go curse God's people, but he ends up just blessing God's people over and over again? And then at the end of Numbers, I believe Numbers 24, he gets a glimpse of God's people in the wilderness, surrounded, their camp is surrounding the tabernacle, and he's blown away. And he remembers what God did to Egypt. And he says, no one competes with this God. Maybe that's what it was like. They're seeing these festivals. They're seeing the glory of God. They remembered what happened at Jericho and to countless other enemies. And they realized, we don't stand a chance. There's no way we can take this God on. And so they run. And it's good they did because here's why. Verse 7. By the east wind, you shattered the ships of Tarshish. This is a really funny verse to me. The more I studied it, the more funny it became because you probably remember Tarshish at least a little bit from the story of Jonah. I'm guessing that's the first thing that might pop into your mind. Remember, Jonah was told, go to Nineveh, preach the gospel, and he said, no way. And so what did he do? He ran to Tarshish. And he ran by getting on one of these ships and taking this ship to the far reaches of the north, as far as he can get from Nineveh. And these ships were huge. They were big and stable because it was such a long and dangerous journey to get to this place, to Tarshish. In Revelation 18, Tarshish is actually a symbol for evil, along with Babylon as well. So I believe the psalmist here is kind of gathering this picture together, symbolizing the strongest powers of evil in this world are being brought against God. Maybe in our minds, something that might compare to this is think of like a royal navy, something huge, submarines, battleships, whatever we can offer, whatever we can throw at God. That's what's gathering here. They're coming to assault God. And how does God destroy them? With wind. (laughs) That's it. No wave, no fish, no fire from the sky. Just done. It's it's almost as if the psalmist is saying, look, you can't compete with this God. The strongest threats in this world are nothing to him. Nothing. They're not even a competition. He can take us out with no effort at all. But God's enemies want to learn this the hard way. Every single time. And here's the confession that they should have after losing the battle time and time again. And the confession that we should have even as the church, as we see God's victories. Verse 8. As we have heard, so have we seen. Oh, we've heard the legends. We've heard the stories of your miraculous deliverance, God. They seemed a little far-fetched from our point of view. But then we saw you. And you're even greater than we possibly could imagine. And where is that greatness manifested? Verse 8, right in the middle. In the city of the Lord of hosts. In the city of our God. Which God will establish forever. You want to know why the church cannot be shaken? You want to know why God's people last? It's because God establishes his city. And God will defend his city each and every time. They made a notice, we didn't figure out who these kings were. The psalmist, I think, is very intentional on that. He doesn't name these armies. Because there's countless places in all of Scripture that this victory could be referring to. That's how often it happens. And it still happens in our life. Where God miraculously delivers us from all kinds of things. Because this is what it's like to be the people of God. Psalm 2 reminds us of this. 
Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords. That's what they were doing in Psalm 48. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath terrify them in his fury and listen to what he says as for me i have set my king on zion my holy hill time and time again throughout history god's people are attacked assaulted persecuted many of them are martyred they're put to death but what happens each and every time the church remains The church grows sometimes because and through that persecution. The gospel continues to be preached to the ends of the earth because the city of God is eternally secure in God. So I ask you, are you ever surprised by opposition? Are you ever surprised when persecution comes? Are you surprised when you see the world start to marginalize the church to act like your very beliefs don't even matter? That they're ridiculous. Are you surprised by this? I am. I shouldn't be. Because God's word reminds us repeatedly, this is what we signed up for. You want to follow a crucified Savior? This is what life looks like. Jesus himself says, John 15, a servant is no greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. But even though we're persecuted, we're not destroyed. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 8, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. Dying to ourselves every day. So that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Do you want to know why it's so hard to fight sin? Do you want to know why temptation feels so strong at times? Do you want to know why our enemies seem to never miss a chance to take a shot at us? As soon as we stumble, they're right there, aren't they? Ready to try to take us out. Do you want to know why it's such a battle to come and worship with the people of God on Sunday morning and Sunday evening? Why it's hard to pray together and fellowship together and to trust each other and lay down our lives for each other and be patient with each other. Do you want to know why that's so hard? Because you're in a war. You're in a war each and every morning. The war exists in your heart, in your flesh, and in the world around us. We don't need to lose hope, do we? Because our God is with us. Even while we're in the war, we are also in the city of our God. God is our fortress. God is our strength. And he will wipe out the enemies forever one day. And that's the last point. What's it like to be the people of God? It's like living in the city of our God, surrounded by enemies, but eternally secure. And the first thing the psalmist does is encourages us to look to God to reflect on who he is. Verse 9. We have thought, we've reflected, we've meditated on what? On your steadfast love, your hesed, your covenant faithfulness, O God. In the midst of your 
temple. As the people gather, what are they doing? They're contemplating the steadfast love of God. You know, that's why we come here every week. We don't come here merely to socialize, to sing. We don't come here to do some form of penance, to have a pastor slam us with the law, to feel guilty about ourselves so we feel like we did something to make up for it. We don't come here to make our families better or to fix our relationships. Those things might happen here and they should happen here. But that's not primarily why we gather. We gather as God's temple here to do what? To celebrate the covenant faithfulness of God. To remember that God has never once, once failed his people. Even though we fail continuously on every page of Scripture, we can see the covenant faithfulness of our God. We can be reminded that we are eternally secure in Him. And what should this reflecting do to us? It should lead us to praise. It should lead us to rejoicing. Verse 10. As your name, O God, so your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. The psalmist says, yeah, your fame, your name, your reputation is spread, your gospel is preached, and what continues to happen? Your praise grows. That's the goal of missions. I think Piper's the one who said, missions exist because worship doesn't. God is gathering worshipers. He's building this heavenly choir. And the more the world learns about God, the more they're drawing near to repent. And trust Him and praise Him. More and more worshipers are being gathered and more and more enemies are also assaulting the church. And what are they seeing? Look at the middle of verse 10. Your right hand, your strong hand, that's the king's hand that makes rulings. Your right hand is filled with righteousness. Let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah Rejoice. That's the churches all around the world. Rejoice. Why? Because of your judgments. This is talking about God's providential hand of righteousness. Revealing his character to his people so that they can worship him. They can see his judgments against their enemies and see his salvation in their favor all around us. That's what they're celebrating. They're worshiping God for his salvation through judgment. Isn't it amazing that God's righteous right hand and his judgments that used to be against us, that was heavy upon us, has all been laid on Christ at the cross so that his righteousness comes to us. He has been judged so that we can be saved. And now God sustains us And sanctifies us. How? By judging our enemies. By them persecuting us and God taking them out. And one day he will do that forever. As he glorifies us for all of eternity by wiping sin away from creation. Doesn't that make you want to rejoice? That God can make enemies his own people. It makes us rejoice and reflect And then lastly, recount. Remember his faithfulness. Look at verse 12. It's one of my favorite images in this whole psalm. Walk about Zion. Go around her. Number or count her towers. Consider well her ramparts. Go through her citadels that you may tell the next generation. 
Oh, there's some wonderful wordplay here in Hebrew that we don't see in English. But you'll notice in verse 12 that number, number her towers or count her towers. That's the same word in verse 13 that says, tell. Tell the next generation. You see what the psalmist is doing? Go count the towers. Go count the people. Go count the damage from this war so that you can do what? So that you can recount. Recount what God has done. Count up the grace so that you can recount it to generation after generation. And you can tell them, verse 14, that this is God. Not this is God's work. Not this is God's city. That would be enough. But no, this is God. And not just any God. Our God. This is who He is. This reveals His character and His work among us. This is who He is. And He remains forever and ever. And what does that mean? He will guide us forever. I think a better translation of that is he will guide us even beyond death. You know, death itself is not even enough to remove you from the city of God. In fact, it's the last gateway to enter before you go into the city of God eternally. You see the picture the psalmist is painting? The kingdoms of this world, they surround God's people time and time again, intent on wiping them out. They do their worst, and God wipes them out in a second. And when God's people emerge, once the battle's over, and they look around to see the damage, what do they see? They look around and see, it's all still here. Go around, run around, go count the towers. Are any of them destroyed? Run through the city, run and check every single corner. See if anything's destroyed. Let's assess the damage. Count up every single person. Did we lose anyone? And they start to realize, it's all here. We're all here. God preserved us all. Nothing was destroyed in the end. God restored all of it. Brothers and sisters, we need to learn to do this in our own lives. The psalmist here is calling us to go around the church to go around the people of God, to get to know people, to recognize the evidence of grace and God's work in us all the time. He's calling us to look around in this church and to see those that were slaves to sin have had that bondage broken and they found eternal and lasting joy and forgiveness. That'll give you help when you're fighting sin. Go around and see marriages restored. See relationships restored. See families brought back together. See those that were greedy, selfish, that were intent on building their own kingdom, now generously giving their kingdom away. This is the evidence of God's work all around us. I am confident you can look anywhere in this church and you will see people laying down their lives for other people, as Christ has done for us in so many ways. Carrying those who are weak, bearing one another's burdens, providing for them. You ever try to bring a meal to somebody that just had a baby? If you don't do it within five minutes, you don't get to. (laughs) People jump in. They do it so fast. It's incredible. So eager to serve and to love other families, even inviting trauma in at times. Taking foster kids into your very home and inviting all the trauma that can happen because of that. We have people laying down their lives constantly, and God is at work redeeming incredible situations. I need to share one story. I was at a pastoral visit this week with our very own Libby Leffler. And if you don't know Libby, she's a wonderful woman. It's exciting to hear her story. And you should go and get to know her. If you don't, I'll introduce you later. But 
This week, she shared a little bit more of her story. I didn't know the extent of it, but I was blown away to hear what God did in her life. When she was younger, she made some poor decisions. She made some terrible decisions. And she got pregnant from a very young age. She couldn't take care of the baby, and she had to sign the baby boy over for adoption. She said it was by far one of the hardest things she's ever had to do. Just the shame and the regret and the difficulty of giving up your own child is just so hard to even imagine. And as she gave her baby away for years, she wondered what happened to her son. How did he turn out? And then years later, years later, he found her when he was all grown up. And they got to talking and they both were surprised to see that they both became believers. That the difficulty and the challenges that their beginning brought into their life, God used to bring them to their knees. To cause them to worship God. And if that wasn't enough, years later her son found his biological father, preached the gospel to him, and he became a believer. You can't make this stuff up. The best writers in Hollywood can't write a story this good. Who would have thought that adultery, giving a child up for adoption, would lead to the salvation of three people? It's incredible. And God is doing this all around us all the time. We need to open our eyes and see it and rejoice that God is at work this way. And even if you're the type of person that says, you know what, I just don't see it. Ah, It sounds amazing and all, but you know what, I still see us losing as a church, battle after battle. We're struggling to make it. If that's you, then look to the end of the church. Look to how it all turns out. Look to the end of history in Revelation 21. You don't need to turn there. But if you're the type of person that is losing hope and you're believing that God has abandoned his church, you need to see that God is sanctifying his church through all of this. And this is how his beautiful bride will turn out. Revelation 21, verse 2. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. What's it like to be the people of God? To live in the city of God. Constantly attacked by our enemies, but eternally secure. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this wonderful psalm that draws our attention towards your covenant faithfulness that we see so clearly in Christ fulfilling all the promises and your continued covenant faithfulness on our behalf in your providential hands of righteous judgment for us. Even though we are sinners, God, you are now for us. You are in our corner because of Christ. So let us rejoice that even though we may seem to lose the battle, we will win the war in the end because you will always defend your church. You will always care for your body and we will be wholly glorified 
honoring you for all of eternity one day. Help us to keep our eyes on that goal, no matter what's happening. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.